provided us another example of the conflict and division that exists uh, in our nation. Uh, Civil discourse and the civil disobedience. I grew up in the 60s and remember the civil disobedience of of Martin Luther King. That looks nothing. The the, the civil disobedience of Martin Luther King and the civil discourse that used to take place have become a long time ago just mere footnotes in a history text. Uh, Discourse in the arena of ideas has been replaced with destructive acts of violence. Uh, We no longer talk to one another. We throw fists. Uh, We no longer listen to one another. Uh, We shout each other other down. And oftentimes, as we can look at our world, these conflicts can seem beyond our control, and and, and they are definitely worrisome. Uh, They they, they should cause us pause, and, and they should cause us concern. Yet, whether the conflict is political, whether it's racial, whether it's cultural, or whether the conflict is even religious... It is merely symptomatic of a greater cosmic conflict. This current, ongoing, cosmic conflict, there's a conflict that is much greater than anything that was witnessed Wednesday. There is a conflict much greater than any of the things that have happened the previous nine months, whether it's been Minneapolis, Dallas, or whatever city that you want want to choose, major city you want to choose. The conflicts that we have witnessed over the course of the last 9 to 12 months pale in comparison to the conflict that is currently taking place. A conflict, by the way, that you are directly involved in whether you realize it or not. A conflict that you can't escape. A conflict that is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And this current ongoing conflict consist of rebellion against the rightful authority of this world, and not only against Him, but against His children. Against His children. So we're going to see, this conflict's personal. It's personal. It's a war, not of political parties. It's a war, not of ideologies. But rather, it's a war that involves kingdoms. It's a kingdom war, and it's a war that's happening today. Our text is the second parable spoken to the crowds. As you recall, as we study Matthew 13, there are eight parables. Four parables are spoken to the crowds. Four parables are spoken privately to the twelve. This is the second of the four parables, and it is the parable that is spoken to the crowds. So it's spoken to the crowds, and like the parable that precedes it, which was the parable of the sower and the soil, which is the first parable spoken to the crowds, this parable, like that parable, is also interpreted by Jesus. Jesus, Of the eight parables, Jesus interprets three of them. He interprets three of them. The sower and the soils, and now this second one, it's called the, 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 the parable of the weeds, or the parable of the tares, uh, or, or the parable of the, of the darnel. We'll, we'll talk all about that in, in, in just a moment. But however, unlike the parable of the sower and the soils, who gets to hear the interpretation is different. In the parable of the sower and the soils, the crowd hears the interpretation. In the parable of the, of, the, uh, of the weeds, the interpretation is not given to the crowd, but rather it is given to the twelve. Only the twelve hear this interpretation. 
whereas the parable of the sower and the soils, all the crowd got to hear the, the interpretation. Also, the parable of the weeds is the first parable with the likeness formula. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, in, in our text, if you look at verse 24, the ESV translates it this way, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Now, it, it's different, and we'll talk about that difference here in just a moment. In, this, in these six parables, out of the eight parables, six of them have this likeness formula. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's not found in the, uh, the uh, uh, first parable. It's not found in the way that it's used in the other six in the last parable. But all six parables that have the kingdom of heaven is like, they use the Greek stem homoia. Homoia. That is that, that, that it might be a noun. In this first instance, it's, it's a verbal form, and, and, but it's, it comes from the same stem, homoia. Uh, and in verse 24, a verbal form is used, whereas in the other five, a noun form. It's an adjective in, in the other five. The first form is, is, an, is, is, is uh, verbal. It's a verbal form. Uh, and and it, in this verbal form is used to emphasize the new and current situation. Jesus is talking about a new situation, and he's talking about a current situation. And as Jesus tells this parable, when he tells the parable, uh, Jesus emphasizes the dialogue between the master and the servant. That's, 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 the, that's the thrust. That's the important point of the parable, is the dialogue between the master and the servant. When Jesus interprets the parable, he's going to emphasize the sowing and the, harvey, the harvest. He, talks, he doesn't talk, he talks very little about the growth. In fact, when we see how this parable is divided, it is divided into three scenes. You have the sowing and its interpretation, which is what we read this morning. You have the sowing in verses 24 and 24. Well, actually, we read the whole thing. But you have the sowing in verses 24 and 25. And then you have its interpretation of the sowing scene in verses 36 through the first part of verse 39. In verses 26 through 29, it talks about the growth. The growth of the the seed, uh, the growth of uh, which was the wheat, and the growth of the of the weeds is talked about in there. But there's no interpretation of that. Jesus doesn't interpret that. He does interpret the harvest, and and, and you see he talks about the harvest in verse thirty in the parable, and then he interprets the harvest in the second part of verse thirty nine down through verse forty three. So as we look at this parable, there's three scenes that are there. Now this morning. We're going to focus upon the sowing scene. We're going to look at the sowing scene. We're going to look at its interpretation. We don't have to scratch our heads and try to figure this out because Jesus interprets it for us and then make the application for us today. So let's look at verses 24 and 25. And here is what we have as Jesus tells the parable. He gives us the sowing scene. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Verse 24 starts off with, He put another parable. Another parable. By using the word another, Jesus is identifying this kingdom parable just like the previous one. In other words, the parable of the sower in the soils is talking about the same general thing that this parable is going to talk about. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. 
So by saying, and by Matthew writing down, he put another parable before them. In other words, another of the same kind. It's a different parable, but the topic is the same topic. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And not only is Jesus talking about the kingdom, but he's also recall that these parables are revealing the secrets of the kingdom. They're revealing the secrets of the kingdom. And, and, and the secrets of the kingdom is talking about that Jesus teaches that prior to the consummation, Jesus, Jesus' ministry inaugurated the kingdom. It inaugurated the kingdom. But the consummation of the kingdom doesn't occur until Jesus comes back. He's going to come back to this earth. He's not going to come back as a baby the second time. He comes back as a king the second time, as a conqueror the second time, as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And he comes to to vanquish his enemies. He comes to set up his throne uh, uh, on the earth and and, and rule from Jerusalem and and, and rule over all the nations. Uh, That's what he's going to do when he comes back. But in between the time of the inauguration and the time of the consummation is where you and I live. We live between the, uh, 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 the, the already and the not yet. We live between the time when Jesus began it to where now. But, but as, as we look at our world, it's definitely not a world in which the kingdom of Christ rules. But as we've talked about over the last several weeks, that we are, uh, we are a kingdom uh, that the church uh, has kingdom citizens, the body of Christ. We are kingdom representatives. And the visible presence of God's kingdom is to be seen, is to be made visible to those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is the visible manifestation of the presence of God's kingdom. And it's evidenced through the church. Now, we are, we are to demonstrate to the kingdoms of this age that they belong to the wrong kingdom. That their priority, that their, that their uh, allegiance is to the wrong kingdom. And that the kingdom that they should look for, the kingdom that they should desire to be a citizen of, is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. And it's our job, our responsibility, it is the church's responsibility to show people what kingdom life is going to look like. We don't do it perfectly. But this is a place, regardless of who you voted for, if you're a child of God, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're you're confronted, you're dealt with in patience, you are dealt with kindness, You are dealt with graciousness. You are dealt uh, as a brother or sister in Christ because our greater loyalty is to King Jesus. Our greatest, why we are united has nothing to do with how much we make or what kind of music we like or, or the color of our skin or our political persuasion. What unites us is the fact that we all recognize that without Christ and, and who He is and what He accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ for us, that we are damned and doomed. That there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. But God has created us in order that we might be able to worship Him and experience the joy of knowing who He is. He wants hearts that are turned to Him, hearts that long for Him, hearts that desire Him, hearts that are pliable, hearts that don't go chasing after gods that are no gods at all, hearts that don't chase after idols, 
but hearts that desire to know the one whom lo- who loves us and sent his son for us and created us and made us in his image. And that's our purpose. That's why the church is so important. It's our purpose to show to the kingdoms of this age what life is going. This is just a foretaste. This is just, a, you know, it's like when Lisa makes especially like her buttermilk cakes or something like that. I'm going to come around some, some, somewhere during that process when she doesn't see me. And I'm going to grab a spoon and I'm, going to, I'm not going to get just a little bit on my spoon. Because she's not there and she doesn't see me. Man, that spoon's going deep down in that thing, you know. And I'm going to come and swirl it around and make sure nothing falls off. And stick that whole thing in my mouth. And get a little taste. And sometimes for me, at least, the batter's better than what gets baked. But, you know, but, but, but to get a little taste, a foretaste of what she's making. And that's what the church is supposed to be. We give this world, the kingdoms of this age, who are confused and lost, who are struggling to to gain control and power, we show them what it's like to know and to love and to worship and to obey and to serve King Jesus. That's the secret. That's the secret. So it's a parable like the previous parable. But also... The ESV translates it this way, the kingdom of God may be compared. And the word there is homoiothe. Homoiothe. Again, it comes from the same root, homoia. But this is a verbal form here. And it indicates, by using this form, it's also passive. By using this form, it indicates that Jesus viewed the kingdom of heaven as having present reality. Or in other words... What he is describing is happening when Jesus said it. It's happening right now. What this parable is about was happening the very moment Jesus was talking. It was happening. It was occurring. And not only is it occurring then, it's still occurring as we'll see. It's still occurring today. So Jesus, by by changing the word and using the word, is emphasizing the fact that that what he's describing here is happening right now, at that moment. So when we look at the sowing scene, we see two things. or We see three sets of two. We see two sowers. The verse talks about a master or the owner of the household. So the person that is doing the sowing is the master. The person that is doing the sowing is, is the owner. He, 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 he's the householder. It also describes for us another person. And, 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 and if you look at verse 25, it says, But while his men were sleep, sleeping, his enemy... It's the word that we've got up there, Altuha ekthros, which means of, of, of his, the enemy. And it's emphatic. In other words, what we're talking about here is the two sowers are the master or the owner... And his sworn enemy. In other words, and we'll talk about this in a second, it's personal. Being from Ohio and a Buckeye, oh, by the way, did y'all know Ohio State Buckeyes are playing for the national championship? I just, I just, I just throw that out. But, but, huh? but anyhow, but being from Ohio and a Buckeye, one of the first questions when we ask somebody, I mean, I remember this when I, got to, when I went to college. 
I remember introducing and saying, hey, yeah, I'm from Ohio, and, and it's, I'm from Michigan. And immediately, when te- from, if you're from Ohio, and somebody tells you they're from Michigan, your back immediately goes straight up. And the reason being is because Ohio State Buckeyes hate the Michigan Wolverines. I mean, they're just, you, you just do. You think Texas and Texas and A&M is a big, that's nothing compared to Ohio. I mean, if, if, if the Ohio State coach lost every game except the one against the Wolverines, he'd keep his job. It doesn't matter if he went one in, one in ten. You know, or, as long as you beat Michigan, it's a good year. You know, it's a good year as long as you beat Michigan. And, and so you have this, this rivalry. This is personal here. His enemy. His enemy. It's not just talking about somebody that doesn't like, two people that don't really care for one another. This is his sworn enemy. There's two seeds. It says The text says that the master sows good seed in his field. We find out later that this is wheat. When he talks about uh, now no less than gathering the weeds and root up the wheat along with them. So he sows good seed, which is wheat. And then the enemy sows, sows weeds. The word is darnell. And, 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 and you, when you look that up, and I don't want to get too much into uh, the, 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 the botany of it, but darnell is basically indistinguishable from wheat until harvest. They look exactly the same. You have wheat and you have darnell growing, and they will look exactly the same. In fact, the only time, the only way that you can tell the difference is after the, the grain comes. And when the grain comes to fruition, uh, the, the darnell grain is darker than the wheat grain. Uh, in fact, there's some people, some places that I was doing the research, some people refer to darnell as wheat's wicked twin sister. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty good. You know, wheat's wicked twin sister. And what makes Darnell so dangerous is that it's poisonous, but it also, when it's ingested, can disorient you or make you intoxicated. And if you ingest too much of it, if you grind too much of it and, and make it so you make bread out of it or whatever, or put it in with regular wheat, uh, it can kill you. You know, my generation thought they were real cute making marijuana brownies. But back in this time, you'd make Darnell, Darnell bread. <laughs> you know, when you get a little high, you know, instead of making marijuana brownies... You made, I never made marijuana brownies, uh, but, but, you know, I never ate a marijuana brownie. But, but anyhow, there you make Darnell bread. But you had to be real careful because if you get too much Darnell in there, you're going to die. You're going to die. And so you have this, and, and, and if Darnell gets mixed in with your wheat crop, it ruins it. You can't sell it. You can't, you can't, because you're selling poisonous grain. Or if you eat it, you could die from it because you're eating poisonous grain. And part of what Darnell does is it intertwines. It intertwines with the wheat's root system. And Darnell's root system goes deeper. And Darnell's root system, as is with most weeds, is stronger. Stronger. So that's what's going on here. That's what's being planted. You also have two sowings. You have two sowers. You have two seeds. You have two sowings. You have the good seed that is sown during the day can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. If you're sowing seed, you do it during the day. So he sends his servants out, and they go, and, they, and during the day, they, they work hard that day, and they sow their, their seed with field. Uh, sow, their, sow their field with seed. There we go. They sow their field with seed. But then look at the text, and it says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat 
and went away. I mean, can't, you can see him, can't you? And with this weather, you can kind of hear them cr- at night, and they're crunching in the snow. And, oh, boy. There's nothing like hearing snow crunch, you know. They're crunching in the snow, and they're quiet, and it's stealth. And they've come, and they've got the Darnell seed with them. And while the man and his servants, his workers are sleeping, they come at night, they're sneaky, and they begin sowing that Darnell seed, that unwanted sowing. And they do it at night under the cover of darkness. And by just, if you're sitting here and you're listening to this, you don't need an interpretation right now because you know what the implications are. The implications right now are very clear. The ruination of the entire crop is the goal. That's the goal. To ruin the entire crop. There's just Right now there's just seed in the ground. And unbeknownst to the landowner, unbeknownst to the servants, as you're, just, as you're sitting there just listening to what's going on, you have this enemy who's come, his sworn enemy, and has sown this seed. And it's to do it to ruin the entire crop. Also, as we said earlier, it's personal. It's personal. This isn't just somebody that doesn't know his victim. This isn't somebody who's just doing a drive-by seed throwing, okay? This is personal. He knows who he is. He knows where his seed is being sown. And he wants to ruin him and his seed. It's personal. It's personal. But not only that, it's current. As the words that Jesus has used, it, it, it's going on. Jesus is like, this is going on. When, G, when Jesus says it, it is going on right at that moment. So that's the sowing scene. That's what he tells us. Verses 36 through 39, he gives us its interpretation. We'll read the whole thing and then we'll kind of come back to some of these verses. It says, Then he left the crowds, Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So if, and if you'll notice the next two words, he says the harvest. So he skips the growth. He doesn't interpret the growth aspect. He, he, go, he, he interprets the sowing scene, and he interprets the harvest scene. So here he's interpreting the sowing scene. And unlike the previous parable, Jesus' interpretation of this parable is private rather than public. Again, verse 36. He left the crowds, he goes into the house, and his disciples come to him. So the parable of the sower and the soils, he, that's, a, that's a public interpretation. And as we stated earlier, rather than being public, this interpretation is private. It's in the house to the twelve. And not only is it, is it, is it uh, private rather than public, it's also reactive rather than proactive. When Jesus gives the interpretation of the sower and the soils, nobody asks him about it. He just does it. Uh, it's, it's right after he, he talks to them about the fact that uh, he, he quotes from, uh, from Isaiah 6 
and uh, uh, he, he also lets them know that the secret has been given to uh, the secrets of the kingdom. He answers the question of the, of the twelve about, you know, why do you speak to them uh, in parables? Uh, and then, and then he, he quotes Isaiah 6, and then he, he gives the interpretation to the crowd of the sower and the soils. Here, the interpretation is reactive. In other words, Jesus responds to the twelve's request. Nobody asked him to interpret the parable of the, so, of the soil and the sowers. But the twelve do ask him to interpret the parable of the weeds. Explain to us, verse 36 says, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So that, that's different. So when Jesus explains this, when he tells us what does he do? Well, in this interpretation, Jesus identifies for us. The, the, basically, what he does with the sowing scene is he, he identifies the players. He lets us know who's who in this particular parable. So he identifies himself as the one who continues to sow. It's a present active participle. Uh, if you'll look back at the text again, in verse 13, he says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 37 the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. This equals this. The parable that I just told you, the one who sows, the man, the, the owner, the master, the householder, Jesus says, is me. That's me. I'm the one, I'm the master, I'm the householder, I'm the owner. That's me. So what does he own? Well, he owns the field. Well... What's the field? Well, he lets us know, look at the text. He says, the field is the world. It's the world. The field, that's pretty pretty straightforward. The world is the stage of the conflict. So Jesus says, I'm the master, I'm the owner, I'm the householder. I'm the master and owner of this world. And the world is the stage of the conflict. The world is where all this conflict occurs. He goes on. He identifies. He says, uh, and, the, uh, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So the good seed are those who are identified. They're sons of the kingdom. They're children of the kingdom. In other words, by, by calling them sons of the kingdom, he is saying that these are men and women whose lives are characterized by kingdom principles. Just like Barnabas, uh, remember, is called the son of consolation. In fact, that's what Barnabas means. That wasn't his original name. But because of how he encouraged people, he's called the son of consolation. Bar means son. Uh, he's the son of consolation. In other words, he, ex- he, he, they, he was named according... <clears throat> excuse me. The disciples changed his name according to his characteristic. Every time you see Barnabas, he's encouraging somebody. Every time you see Barnabas, he's reaching out to somebody. Every time you see Barnabas, he, he's coming along beside somebody. So let's just call him Barnabas, son of consolation, because he displays those characteristics. Here Jesus is talking about the sons of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom. These are, are the children of the kingdom. The good seed are those who are identified with Jesus They are children of the kingdom. Their lives are characterized by kingdom principles. Their lives are characterized by kingdom principles. He says the weeds are the sons of the evil one. 
The weeds are those who are identified with the evil one. The weeds are those who, whose lives are characterized by the evil one. Well, who's the evil one? He identifies the enemy. He says, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The enemy is Satan or the devil. Depending on what name is used, depending upon what is being uh, emphasized about him, whether he is the accuser or the slanderer or the evil one. Uh, he, that's, 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 that's how these are. So we've got all the players. We've got all the players. In this parable, Jesus is the master and owner. The world is the stage. The world is the field. The good seed that is being sown into the world are those kingdoms, kingdom, sons, sons and daughters of the kingdom whose lives are characterized by kingdom principles. The enemy comes and sows his seed, and that enemy is Satan. It's personal. It's personal between Satan and Jesus and between Satan and the children of God. It's personal. And the seed that is being sown there are those whose lives are characterized by the evil one. So knowing the players, this is what this scene is teaching. After after inaugurating the kingdom... And prior to its culmination, prior to its, to its consummation, Jesus has placed within the world He owns those who in character and life resemble Him. Jesus said that's happening now. It was happening when Jesus told it. And again, we told you that that word there, uh, the, the idea of sowing there, it, it is a, a, a participle. It, Jesus is continually sowing. He just didn't sow one time and said, that's it. He's continually sowing into the world good seed. Continually sowing into the world good seed. So after inaugurating the kingdom, and prior to its culmination, prior to its consummation, Jesus is placing, has placed, is placing, will place within the world he owns those who, those who in character and life resemble him. That's the first thing. The second thing in knowing the players, we see that this scene teaches this. With stealth. Remember, he comes at night. He comes under the cover of darkness. With stealth, Satan, the enemy of Christ is raising up alongside kingdom children those who identify with Satan, whether they're people or whether it's philosophies, worldviews. Whether it's people or whether it's philosophies. See, this doesn't have to be people. It can be philosophies. I mean, y'all, I'm sure, have heard we're now in Congress any laws that are brought before can't have he, she, or any kind of personal pronouns in it anymore like that. In other words, when, if I'm walking along and you know, I see Sandy, uh, I, I, I mean, I think, I think about this. In today's culture, if I see Sandy or if I see Eddie and say, how is your wife doing? Or there, there she is sitting by the window. I've just created a great offense just by calling her she. And just by saying her. Now, I guarantee you, 30, 40 years ago, if somebody would have told me that, I'd say, you, cra- you, cra- 
you, you've, been, you've been eating some of that Darnell bread, haven't you? Yeah. You've been eating some of that Darnell bread. That's where our culture is at. I mean, so when God created Adam and Eve, I mean, you know, male and female, he, he created them. And I know there's a difference between gender and sex as being what, what's being talked about. But we are living in a world, in a culture, where this, this sowing of the seed is, 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 is not just necessarily people. It can be philosophies and worldview as well. Those things that are being attacked. I mean, my parents would have never ever thought that when I was in school that I, would, I, I, might, be, I might get taught the fact that you know, if a boy wants to go to a girl's bathroom, it's okay as long as he feels like a girl that day. My parents never had to worry about that. They never had to worry about it being okay for a guy to go to a girl's bathroom and a girl to go to a boy's bathroom. They never would have fathomed that. And by the way, neither would I when my kids were growing up. So we have not just people, but philosophies, worldview. Satan with stealth, the enemy of Christ, is raising up alongside kingdom children those who identify with Satan. And this close proximation, remember they're together. And God allows them to stay together. We'll look at that eventually, not today. God allows them to stay together. But this close proximation is for the purpose of intertwining with kingdom children to deceive and destroy them and the work of God through them. What is the goal? The entire ruination of the crop. The entire ruination of the good seed. To poison it. To infiltrate it. To make it of no good use. This is personal. This is personal. This world, this world is the stage on which the continuing opposition of Satan against the people and plan of God is made visible. It's made visible. And this This is the conflict that should be most on our hearts and minds. This is the conflict that should be most on our hearts and minds. And the reason why it should be the conflict that should be most on our hearts and minds because it is personal and as a child of God, you and I, and let me use an American idiomism here, you and I are smack dab in the middle of it. You and I are smack dab in the middle of it. It's personal. Satan is out to ruin you because you belong to Jesus. He's out to poison you. He's out to deceive you. 
He's out to ruin you. One day, our nation is going to perish. All, all nations eventually do. But the kingdom of God remains. The kingdom of God remains. And as I look around at the conflict that takes place, it grieves my heart to see people who are made in the image of God treating other people that way. That grieves my heart. But I also recognize that, that there is a greater cosmic conflict, and really that conflict is, 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 is just a spoke of the wheel of this greater cosmic conflict that's going on. Because Satan not just only hates God's people, Satan hates humanity in general. He hates humanity in general. Because God has, God has made human beings a little lower than the angels, and God has given them the right to rule over His creation. Those who, who, who know Him, who put their faith and trust in Him, and, 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 and who are His children one day will rule over His entire creation under the authority of Christ. And I'm not sure what all that looks like, but David talks about that in the Psalms. And what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou should visit him? Thou made him a little lower than angels, and you gave him dominion and authority over all the things that he's created. And we see that in the very book of Genesis, uh, to, to have dominion and authority over all the world. Satan just doesn't hate God's people. He hates them. Uh, but he also just hates humanity in general. And he, 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 he is gleeful when he sees even lost people at each other's throats. And it ought to grieve our hearts when we see the conflict that's taking place. But the thing that even should concern us more is that brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a battle against them to deceive and ruin them. To deceive and ruin them. Satan seeks the ruination of the body of Christ through deceit. He comes under the cover of darkness. Satan just doesn't come, normally doesn't come and just flash out the goodies and flash out the temptations. He, it's done in a stealth-like manner. I mean, why is it that, that the sins that, that, that I commit and maybe the sins that you commit, we do it in a corner? We do it where nobody can see us. We do it under the cover of darkness. And Satan seeks to ruin, ruin our lives. And my greatest allegiance better not be to, to a political party or, or to a political ideology. My greatest allegiance better be to the body of Christ to the body of Christ. Am I bothered more by what happened in D.C. or Minneapolis than I am by brothers and sisters in Christ who are being deceived and destroyed by Satan? Do I mourn over the fact that those who are my brother and those who are my sister are being deceived and ruined by the power of Satan. Does that stir me as much as what I see going on in the nation that I was born in? What stirs me more? I, I'm reading a book 
that, gosh, I wish I could remember the title. Um, in the, I mean, the author, it deals with the idols of the heart. It's Edward something. And I tell you what, I, this book is just, it, I, I, I just have this, I read it and there's just this sense of mourning and foreboding as I think about how, he, he, he talks about Isaiah 6 and how the hardening of the, it deals with the hardening of the heart. And, 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 and how our hearts are hardened and as you look through that, that theological truth throughout the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures and the, and the Scriptures in the, the New Testament that it results out of idol worship where we choose to worship something great where we violate the first two commandments of uh, thou shalt not have no other gods before me where we violate Deuteronomy 6, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our, all our life, all our being. And, and, and that when we, 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 we make gods that are, that are not really gods in our lives, that when we, we bow our hearts and move our hearts towards worshiping the idols of our hearts, that, that we lose uh, the, uh, the, the sensory, we, we have a, a, a sensory depletion. So having eyes to see, we don't see. And having ears to hear, we don't hear. And, and the very truths that God lays out in front of us, as Jesus talks about in this parable, the very truths that He lays out in front of us, we are so blinded by our idolatry that we don't see it. And our hearts become hardened. And I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to you. But I do see it. I do see it where we bow and we put our trust in things that are not God. And our hearts begin to harden. And God's truth becomes more opaque. And finally to the place where it looks like we're looking at it through a film. And then finally... When you can't see nothing but maybe a little movement. And it's dark. And our heart is hard. And it can happen to any of us, according to this text. There is a battle that is raging. And it's a battle that's taken place ever since Jesus started His ministry. It's a battle of kingdoms. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan. And for right now, Jesus is sowing the good seed of the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The children of the kingdom. But Satan is also sowing seed. And that seed... Those plans get intertwined. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And the purpose of the seeds of the enemy is to ruin. Whether that's through the influence of other people, whether that's through the influence of philosophies, worldviews, whatever. And we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. And may God help us. May we 
throughout some, some part of our day, whether it's the beginning, whether it's the end, whether it's in the middle, whether it's both or all, to where we ask God to help us to keep having a soft, tender, pliable heart. And to keep us, as John told us in his, not, not his gospel, but his epistle, to flee idolatry. Keep Little children, keep yourself from idolatry. May God help us to make Him first and foremost in our life. And that regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequence, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the price, we will obey and walk with Him not so that we can earn His favor. Not so that we can gain His favor. But as an expression of our love and devotion that we will have no other gods but Yahweh. But Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for its warning, Lord. Thank you for its comfort. And Father...